I'm so glad that this day has finally arrived. When I was appointed to, to Dauphin Way, the first thing someone said was, you won't have a crowd on Joe Kane Sunday. <laughs> and so I sort of expected to hear crickets in here this morning. <laughs> but you are here, and thank you for being here. We're not as strong in number as usual, but nevertheless, we are together. And hasn't this place been filled with wonderful sounds this morning? Thanks be to God. Nell and I know a woman who has a gift of being able to see auras. She says that in certain times with certain people, she sees what she describes as a golden glow emanating about their heads. I said to her once, Linda, you are living in two worlds, this world and the world to come. She is not an excessively imaginative person. She is, I think, a mystic, but she is also a, a woman who is well experienced in down-to-earth realities. For example, she is a whiz with computers and she worked for many years as a certified public accountant. And I don't know of anything more practical than a CPA, do you? So if it is that she perceives these manifestations of divine and human energy, I believe my friend is in good company for many of the great spiritual teachers were so gifted. Among them, Meister Eckhart, Hildegard of Bingen, and Teresa of Avila. But most of us are not mystics. We deal in the down-to-earth realities. Yet most of us, if not all of us, have experienced moments when we perceived reality at a higher, a deeper, a more sublime level. Most of us, if not all of us, have known some kind of spiritually numinous experience in which divine light shone around us, heaven touched earth, and God's nearness was just palpable. Now, if you have never had such an experience, don't despair. Keep living, keep praying, keep looking, keep listening. You will. In the Christian Bible, the transfiguration of Jesus is the clearest and most poignant example of what we might call a mystical experience. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. Only three of the twelve go with Jesus, and we wonder about the other nine. Where were they? Why were they not there? Were these three more advanced, more prepared for this than the others? Did they need it more than the others? Or were they the only ones who were willing to climb the mountain? Did the other nine say something like, well, we'll just stay here, y'all go ahead, we can pray here as well as there? The truth is, we don't know. But for whatever the reason, there are only three who are there. And sacred experiences, those transcendent moments are like that, aren't they? They cannot be programmed. They cannot be predicted. Who knows why our friend is able to see auras and Nell and I aren't? Who knows why some of us will come in here on a given Sunday and experience Christ in a profound way 
And for others of us, it will be just a good but ordinary Sunday. The Spirit blows where the Spirit wills, and we do not control that. Jesus takes these three to the mountain. And of course, mountains in Scripture are important places. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and encountered God there, received the law. Elijah encountered God on the top of the mountain. Jesus taught on a mountain. He was tempted on the mountain. And this mountain of transfiguration, Mount Tabor, is known in the spiritual landscape of that region as the Middle Mountain, located between the Mount of the Beatitudes and Golgotha, the hill on which Jesus is crucified. On this mountain, Jesus is transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John. His visage becomes dazzling. He radiates the the uncreated light of God. Even his clothing is infused with divine light. He is dazzling, as Kathy said to the children. And these three are bewildered. And they see Jesus enter, literally, into the communion of saints. He converses with Moses, the the great law, man of law, and with Elijah, the first of the great prophets. And in Luke's gospel, we are told that Jesus has conversation about his departure, his exodus that he is to accomplish in Jerusalem as he goes there to die. They are amazed, and they are speechless. They don't know what to say, but they do want to remain there. And so Peter, as he often does, speaks for the others and proposes that they build three dwellings, three booths, three tents. And this is reminiscent of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths. You will remember that in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded that they should live in tents for a certain period of time every year to remember the wilderness wanderings of their ancestors, those people, those ancestors who lived in tents as they made their way through the wilderness to the promised land. And again, the wilderness is a special part of the spiritual landscape. The wilderness is the place of escape. It is a place of liberation and safety. It is also a place to be passed through, and it is a place where faith is required. And Peter senses that this is such a place, and so he proposes these tents that they might dwell there. A cloud descends. God's voice is heard. It is with them as it was with Moses on the mountain of God. They hear again what Jesus heard at his baptism. You are my son in whom I delight. And they learn again what Jesus has learned at his baptism, that he is the Messiah who will enter into his messianic reign by way of suffering and death. And then those words, listen to him. And with that command ringing in their ears, the scene changes before them, and they are left alone with Jesus. The story of transfiguration always comes on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. It is always, every year, a prelude to that season 
in which we follow Jesus to the cross. And for these three, exper- uh, these three disciples, this experience of transfiguration comes immediately after they have just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It comes immediately after Jesus has just taught them that being Messiah means that he will suffer and that if they are to be his disciples, they must take up their own crosses and follow him. And so it would seem that this amazing encounter would prepare them for what they will face on Good Friday and what he will face on Good Friday. But it's not altogether clear that they get it. And in the immediate aftermath of this, the immediate uh, unfolding of the story after this, they don't seem to understand. They still fail on Good Friday. Yet the gospel writers tell of this because the transfiguration reveals not only the necessity of his suffering and of their suffering, but also it reveals the certainty of his glorious resurrection. In this unforgettable moment, on this most amazing day, these three glimpse Jesus as he will be in his resurrection. So that when they encounter Jesus on the first day of Easter, they will recognize him. They will remember this and they will know him. Glimpsing Christ in his glory on that mountain their eyes will be trained to recognize him in other places and in other people. They will learn to see him in one another. They will learn to see him in those with whom they are in ministry. And this is finally the purpose of any mountaintop experience. Whenever we have such a moment that divine glory shines in our hearts, in our minds. Whenever the Holy Spirit stirs us and moves us deeply, whenever we are brought into the very presence of God, this is given so that we might know Christ These fleeting, extraordinary moments come in order that we might know Christ knowing us. He leads us. And we hear the affirmation that we are his beloved. He leads us and shows us that the way of suffering for the sake of others is the way to life. In these special times, Jesus reveals glimpses of his glory so that we can recognize him in other places and in other people. And the glory of these extraordinary experiences is manifold It is rich and deep and infinite in its manifestations. And when all of it is resolved into one dazzling vision, we see Christ alone. And that is the purpose of it all. 
We hear the divine voice speaking deep to our souls, and we are prepared to listen for what God has to say to us. Our dear friend Linda is grasped by this reality to such an extent that she is being transformed by it. We have witnessed that in her. She's a very gentle, very quiet woman, very unassuming. And Nell and I have known her to be one of the most centered, most present, most compassionate people we have ever seen. And we have witnessed her ministry to traumatized victims of violence. And by God's grace and with great patience and with a willingness to hear, the, to hear deeply the stories of their suffering, she is able to help them discover that they are beloved. To help them discover that they bear the image of God something they weren't even sure they possessed anymore. And over the long journey of following Jesus, she has, been, she has had more than one mountaintop experience. But most of all, she has learned to love as Christ loved. And dear friends, this is the point of it all. And Linda, if she ever hears that I preached and used her story, she will probably take me to task and be embarrassed, for she is so humble. And yet, as I thought of people who have had these sorts of experiences, she came to my mind as someone who, who embodies this and from whom I have learned so much. And so, these are not things we can program or predict. We never know when we will be drawn into a mystical encounter with Christ. The most that we can do is set the table and show up and see what happens. But when these moments come, and they do come, the best that we can do is receive them with humility and gratitude and to learn from them all we can about the grace and love of God. They don't last in this world. They are fleeting. And yet the great teachers of the church tell us that as Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, so we will be in the world to come, filled with the divine light, infused with divine energy, able to radiate the love of God. And so, in our awkward, unsure, stumbling way, we receive the gift and we say, Lord, let it make me like you. 
let me hear what you have to say and let me see you in others. And that is glorious. And that is good. And that is who we are to be. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.